Welcome to Deep Green, a show about how the built environment impacts climate change and equity. Deep Green is brought to you by Metropolis, and I'm your host, Avi Rajagopal. Buildings are some of the biggest things we make as human beings. So if you want to know how we can do better for the environment and for all life on this planet, you have to understand buildings, cities, and all the things that go into them. And that's what we want to help you with here at Deep Green. In the bi-weekly episodes on this podcast, we'll explore sustainability in the broadest sense of the word, encompassing inclusive, healthy, and resilient design along reductions in carbon emission and toxic waste. You can find Deep Green wherever you listen to podcasts. The Tokyo Olympics are underway this week. In the middle of a pandemic, with the Delta variant of SARS-CoV-2 doing the rounds. But some analysts and activists have pointed out that the pandemic isn't the only problem with the Games this year. Tokyo wanted to host the most sustainable Olympics yet. The organizers promised recycled cardboard beds in the athletes' village and super green timber stadiums. But according to a study published by researchers from the University of Lausanne in the journal Nature earlier this year, they've fallen well below the mark. The researchers published a sustainability analysis of 16 editions of the Games between 1992 and 2020. The most sustainable Olympic Games were Salt Lake Cities in 2002. Tokyo? It scores somewhere in the middle. So where did the organizers stumble? Well, for one thing, those super green timber stadiums rely heavily on tropical plywood. Kengo Kuma's Japan National Stadium, yep, the one that he got to build after they fired Zaha Hadid, alone uses 117,800 sheets of the stuff. And at least some of the timber for that plywood comes from forests that were cleared to make way for coal mines and oil palm plantations in Indonesia. The Rainforest Action Network and other eco-NGOs are not happy. So can one have a sustainable Olympics? We have two segments for you today to try and answer that question. First off, how does Los Angeles plan to avoid Tokyo's fate when it hosts the Games in 2028? Here's my colleague Lauren Volker speaking to Brent Sculp, the Chief Impact Officer for the 2028 Games in LA, and Nuit Katz, UCLA's Chief Sustainability Officer. So I'm the Chief Sustainability Officer for UCLA, Nuit Katz. I work across the whole institution, connecting academics, operations, engagement, and working on many different aspects of sustainability, energy, water, waste, transportation, you name it. Brent Kolb, I am the Chief Impact Officer at LA28, and I work with an incredibly talented group of people, including Norit and her team, to host an Olympic and Paralympic Games in Los Angeles in 2028. In short, we are working on ways to reduce our environmental impact, but also create an amazing games experience for everyone. Uh, we're always looking for opportunities to leave LA better than we found it. 
We'll connect the dots a bit for our listeners on why we're speaking to the two of you together today. You were both part of the Sustainability and Legacy Committee for Los Angeles's bid to host the Olympics. What was that experience like? Probably five years ago or so when we began really thinking in earnest about how to design so that we could implement a super environmentally and economically and socially sustainable games in LA. Back at that time, we were even thinking whether it was right for the city of Los Angeles to develop an Olympic village that's often done in other cities. And in our case, we realized talking to Narit and many others, many stakeholders across the city, that what is right for Los Angeles is to use the existing world-class facilities we already have, including and our first major decision, I would think, at that time, Narit, going way back, was really to make a firm commitment to use UCLA as the athlete's village. We realized at that time that the most sustainable venue is the one that you don't have to build. I think Brent's captured that really well. There was such good synergy between the goals of LA28 and the goals of UCLA in terms of sustainability, and we were able to really collaborate and think how our existing sustainability initiatives, where we would be by the time the Olympics comes and how that could really complement the, the strategy for the Olympic Games. For example, UCLA has a comprehensive green building program as part of our policy. So many of the facilities that'll be part of the Athletes Village would already have, you know, LEED certification. What made the bidding process for the 2028 Games different from previous bids? Instead of focusing on building, which is what many bids do. We decided that the LA 28 games would be an opportunity to focus on people and leave a, a human legacy. Um, you know, we could use our creativity and our energy to continue designing the plan to fit our community, to create a shared experience across neighborhoods, to celebrate the culture that's so unique about LA and ultimately to make our community proud to host the games through experiential initiatives around, for example, equity and inclusion versus focusing on building things. So that was really pivotal for us and distinguished us in the bidding process and honestly was a little bit risky because we weren't sure that's what was expected, but we knew it's what is right for LA. We often hear the term radical reuse in conjunction with the plans for the 2028 Olympic and Paralympic Games. Can you describe this concept for our listeners? So because LA is built already to host a sustainable and a low-risk Olympic and Paralympic Games, we realized that we could lean in on this concept of radical reuse, which is radical simply because it's not often deployed to host games. And in LA, it really means leveraging the best our city has to offer in all of the facilities that are needed to host an event of this magnitude. So not only stadiums and arenas, but also training facilities and residences like the beautiful Athletes Village that will be at UCLA. And hosting the games in this way drastically reduces our environmental impact and our carbon footprint and allows us to 
focus on the experience and the inclusion of people in our community. So this anchoring principle of radical reuse then um, is so fully embedded in the way we have planned to host the games through partnering with all of these other venue partners uh, that are already implementing their sustainability practices in the ways they operate their venues. And it then extends through other areas of sustainability planning that we'll be applying, for example, to procurement. So how can we use materials that already exist? How can we make sure that when we are done using those materials, they can be reused or responsibly returned back to the environment? Concept of working with what we already have and making sure that anything additional we need to bring into the project can be responsibly reused afterwards. It's that simple. Is there any background on the term radical reuse? Do you recall when that came into play throughout the bidding process or maybe who coined it? Honestly, honestly, we just made it up one day in the conference room. Nareet, I don't know if you were there with us at the whiteboard, but um, we decided that it was an obvious concept, but also something that others weren't doing. And so in a kind of cheeky way, we just added the term radical to it. And interestingly, by just coining it with that phrase, we were able to engage our partners around that and, and folks across the organization. You know, I can I can now talk to our procurement officer about radical reuse, and that sounds like a fun conversation to have. <laughs> the term has served us very well. Wording and, and storytelling matter. And so having a phrase to capture that spirit, I think, is really valuable and Sounds like it's been it's been working and sparking those conversations. But it is definitely, you know, I, I think it is a radical approach for the Olympics to take. And it's certainly centered in the very core concept of sustainability that, you know, waste equals energy or waste equals food. So the output from one process, ideally in a in a more circular economy, should be the input for another. So I really love how this Olympics is trying to look at the full life cycle of the materials that they're bringing into Los Angeles and and where it goes. So let's talk about the venues. Which LA sports venues will be part of the reuse strategy? Oh, so many. I mean, there will be many venues, but I'll, I'll just highlight a few people have probably noticed recently this new beautiful stadium called SoFi Stadium has been developed. And of course, because it, it now exists, we'll stick to our principles and figure out a way to use it for festivities around opening and closing ceremonies. Dignity Health Sports Park and South Bay, which is already operated by folks who really care for their community and their environment. We hope to showcase some of the initiatives, you know, they're already putting in place down there and the Forum, the Rose Bowl, just so many. We'll also leverage downtown LA. So that includes LA Live and USC. We'll have a big celebration down in Long Beach at the Long Beach Arena and the waterfront and the beach in Santa Monica. So part of our opportunity using existing venues and world-class operators is really to distribute the games across the region into many communities. So more people have an opportunity to participate in them. And that's another great, I would say, benefit of deploying the strategy of looking for what already exists 
you can meet people in their own neighborhoods without asking people to move too far out of their neighborhoods and, and certainly without displacing any folks by, by building something new. Gary, do you want to talk specifically about UCLA and its facilities and how they fit within their youth strategy? Yeah, so the main use of UCLA's facilities, as Brent's mentioned, is for the Olympic Village. So we have a dense housing area. UCLA really is sort of like a small city. So we're on a normal day, daily population, 80,000 people. So we're well suited to house a lot of athletes. And we already have a strong sustainability focus within our housing area. We have a dedicated sustainability manager for housing and hospitality and have, you know, integrated a lot of sustainability programming for our students, as well as looking at the infrastructure of what will be the village. The LA Memorial Coliseum specifically, can you talk a little bit about how an almost 100-year-old stadium can be modernized to meet today's sustainability goals? So the LA Memorial Coliseum, which hosted the games in Los Angeles in 1932 and 1984, is perhaps our most iconic example of radical reuse. It's a beloved historical facility that has been also modernized, even including with its sustainability practices. And many people may know that the Coliseum already underwent significant modernization. I think it was prior to the 2019 football season. And that was done to make the experience more enjoyable to folks coming to the stadium, but also to make the systems more efficient. And also, the operators of the facility spent several years working very hard to achieve zero waste, which at a facility that size is hard to do. And so now you have this beautiful historical facility that by the time we get around to 28, we'll have hosted three editions of the Olympic and now also the Paralympic Games. It's just a great example of what's possible when you turn your energy to something that that already exists and think about how to make it better versus starting from scratch. How do you think Los Angeles's approach to the 2028 Games will impact planning for future host cities? Well, I, from our perspective, I would say that Los Angeles creates an opportunity to possibly set a new standard for delivering Olympic and Paralympic Games in other cities in the future in a way that's more fiscally responsible and also a way that's more environmentally sustainable. And we're excited about that opportunity because we've seen how powerful the games can be in a city when done right. We see the positive effects of the games from 1984 in our own city and the excitement leading up to 28 and how the games really can bring a community or multi-communities together just through that one event. So if we can, through this process, figure out a way to make it possible for other cities to host in a way that's that's easier, that's less expensive, less risky, more environmentally sustainable, that would be an amazing legacy to leave for the movement. Our goals for LA specifically are to continue looking for ways to leave that human legacy and to inspire and engage the next generation of Olympic and Paralympic fans. You know, this will be the first time LA has hosted World Olympic Games, and that alone creates really an incredible opportunity to expand awareness and also understanding and inclusion of people with 
disabilities. We're starting now with our resources to invest in opportunities for young people to play sport. We've dedicated $160 million for youth sports across Los Angeles. We can start with those giving back opportunities because we're not focusing on building things. To build on what Brent was saying, I mean, I love this focus on community, equity, diversity, and inclusion. You know, I think this Olympics really does have a potential to set an example and leave a real legacy. On the sustainability side, interestingly, some of our most successful and award-winning programs at UCLA, which are on sustainable transportation, uh, a lot of it actually began around the 1984 Olympics in preparation for sort of handling the volume of traffic that was going to be coming to the campus. So I'm sure that this Olympics will also spark innovative ideas throughout the city and then beyond as other cities look to Los Angeles, you know, as one of the largest metropolitan areas in one of the largest economies in the world. You know, L.A. really does serve as an example in these areas and people really do look to California and Los Angeles for innovation and sustainability. I'm really excited to see those ripples of impact from this Olympics. Deep Green will be back after a short commercial break. Deep Green is brought to you by Technion, a Metropolis sustainability partner. Introducing Roots, designed by Pearson Lloyd for Technion. Roots is a new line of office furniture that combines playfulness, practicality, and performance. Visit technion.com to learn more about how Roots is reshaping the workplace. Next up, the afterlife of stadiums. So remember that sustainability analysis of the Olympic Games? The researchers identified nine factors that determine how sustainable any edition of the Games are. Their number one factor, long-term viability of Olympic infrastructure, and in particular, the afterlife of Olympic venues. Montreal hosted the Olympics in 1976, and unfortunately, it wasn't such a good deal. All things considered, the city spent 13 times its original budget. Whew. But now, a nifty piece of adaptive reuse is changing that narrative, at least a little bit. The Velodrome, originally designed by French architect Roger Taibert, was converted into the Biodome, an enormous zoo come terrarium showcasing ecosystems from around the world. My colleague Ethan Tucker caught up with Eve Paris, director of the Biodome, and Rami Babawi, a principal at Canva, which is one of the two architecture firms responsible for the project. The best quality of the Biodome is the quality of immersion. When you go inside a tropical rainforest, you see it, you smell it, you feel it. Hi, my name is Yves Paris. So I'm the director of, of the Biodome in Montreal. I'd worked in the Biodome since the opening in 92. The, the Biodome always defined itself as a nature museum. We are a museum, like an art museum. We do educational, conservation, and research activities. In an art museum, it's about painting and sculpture. In the, the Biodome, it's a little bit special. It's about we work on living collections, so we work 
on plants and living animals. We present nature by doing representation of four different ecosystems from America. So in each ecosystem, you have the, the light, the temperature, the humidity condition to bring plants and animals from five different ecosystems. So the building was built in 76 for the Olympics of Montreal. It was for bike racing competition, inside bike racing. It occurred also the judo competition and wrestling competition. After the Olympic, only a few people used the building to do some cycling competition. So there was a big deficit operating the building. So it was yeah, book who was the director of the Balancal Garden who is just in front of that, that building that he brought in the 80s an international competition uh, called Les Floralis. It's a gardening competition, uh, an exposition of flowers. And this is at that time that they could see the potential of the building to present plants. There is so much uh, natural light inside the, the building, so it's very easy to keep plants alive in, inside the building. And Pierre Bourque is uh, the father and the founder of the biodome. What happened at, at that time, we had in Montreal a zoo and an aquarium, but they needed a big investment to keep them in, in, in touch. So the biodome replaced those equipment. So in uh, 1989, the government decided to do uh, that project and the biodome opened in uh, 92. So I think it shows also uh, an evolution in mentality. Th there is economic reason. Uh, the biodome bring a million visitors a year. So it, it was not the case for the velodrome. But the velodrome was in 76, a temple de dedicated to sport. But in 92, this temple became dedicated to nature. So it's a change in mentality. And in the development was confirmed with the migration project. Well, resalvaging, repurposing is fundamental. And I think that what Eve is saying can extend to other Olympic installations that are existing. And they are opportunities to celebrate different values that are evolving. And they're also an opportunity to question what we do with new Olympic buildings. Some Olympics last two weeks. So we're dedicating years for two weeks. Hi, my name is Rami Debawi. I'm a principal and co-founder of the firm Canva Architecture, who won the international competition six, seven years ago to transform the biodome. So this is a heritage Olympic building. And from the 1976 Montreal Olympics, that was transformed and opened as the biodome in 1992. And it obviously made use of the gigantic skylights as a natural source of energy to provide for different ecosystems. The original building or the original biodome, the entrance was through a sort of closed off entrance, was a very, very low ceiling. And then you went through the different ecosystems in a very linear path. And after having seen each one sequentially, then you would come back up. The, the transformation, we, we identified or treated the biodome itself as a living entity. And so the idea was, how can you intracellularly start moving things around and opening things to create a different way of encountering and exchanging with the natural um, habitats. So the first thing was to open up the entrance and to remove this low ceiling and basically create an entry hall that 
is to the scale of the building and to the scale of the institution opened up to the skyline. So it becomes this gigantic lobby. And from then on, after this, we started slicing different tunnels between the ecosystems and created, emptied the core. And the core became this central void looking up to the sky. Because we consider the entrance to be sort of the urban ecosystem. It's slightly more chaotic. People arriving, there could be wheelchairs, there could be children, there could be adults and so forth. So there's a lot of movement, tickets and all that. And so we didn't want people to right away encounter the species. You start our first funnel through a tunnel. It calms you down. The floor, actually the concrete is sloped. That's not necessarily visible to the eye, but it allows to sort of calm down the person and they arrive to this nucleus. And the void in the center is not only a very peaceful and pure space, but it's also, when you think of it, a circulation hub. That's sort of the platform where from there you can access the different ecosystems. And as you enter to an ecosystem, you arrive into what we call an eco-transit. It's an even narrower funneling where you're sort of removed from any stimuli in a very pure white enclosed space. And then the ecosystems are revealed in their full multi-sensorial stimuli. You go through them. We can talk about that later. But once you've traveled through them, there is another point of view which is offered above, which is the Belvedere, which allows to have a sort of understanding of the unity of all the ecosystems, it reveals the behind-the-scenes components. And as people go back down and leave, there's another exit funnel, which basically brings you out to the public spaces and you relieve the biome. So it's it's really, it's choreographed and it's a sort of like a, we, we play on the sort of emotional curve, this project. But as you enter, again, every single ecosystem, the entrance is mean meant to solicitate senses, always gradually putting sight as the last one, since it's so overstimulated in our day-to-day -day life. So as you enter the subpolar, it's an ice tunnel with a sloped floor. So there's the coldness, you can touch it, it's palpable, but at the same time, because we did not enclose puffins, we are within their climatic condition. So you hear them, you smell them, and you're cold, okay? So as you enter, you're immediately immersed in their world and you go down and you're funneled down to this ice tunnel and then boom, you have this habitat where the penguins are there with the four different species of penguins. We're like four or five meters away. I'm in a tropical forest. I just step out of the subpolar, which you can imagine allows for an enormous transfers of heat and cold to make the building efficient. But the, the tropical forest has to do with height. And Eve, again, we were talking about it I think no later than last week, it's at the upper level of the tropical forest that you have all sorts of different species. So to offer the opportunity to visitors to go up there and walk up this sort of pathway and see the different species appear, you have this different degradation within the ecosystem. Again, it's bringing you within. And the fact that the whole biome was scanned in 3D before drawing it, then you're able to sort of bring in some pathways that go between branches, behind trees, it's really like you're in a forest path. The same thing goes for the Gulf. There was, again, a sort of pathway that was added within it, which is the most open of the ecosystems. It's, it, I think it's the one where you have the greatest sensation of horizon, whereas the other ones are very much about an experience of proximity with what's next to you. We just had to take time to understand the existing building. During the Olympics, the building that stood out the most was not the Olympic Stadium. The tower wasn't even finished. The engineering feat 
was developed. It touches on four points, the ground. It's an extraordinary structural feat. And I think the idea was to reveal that. And to be honest, if we look at the original architecture, and I was trying to try and go through some old blueprints that I can find, uh, I think that Taiber actually, and it's so unfortunate because he passed away only a few months before the opening because we wanted him to be there. I think he had this notion of compression and decompression. He purposefully had a smaller enclosed entrance because he knew it would open up onto the velodrome, right? So I don't think we reinvented much by studying it. And we decided we inverted slightly the sequence, but this notion of open and closing, this notion of playing with scale, I think was already part of the building. And, and if you play with the idea of scale, which is from big to small, from open to compressed, then you get into the scale of nature. And then I think is an incredible parallel because nature has the micro to it and the macro. And the biodome also has this capacity of traveling. To read more about the biodome, head over to metropolismag.com. Deep Green is produced by Metropolis. I'm your host, Avi Rajagopal. The podcast is edited by Hannah Vidi. Today's stories were reported by Lauren Volker and Ethan Tucker. A big thanks to today's guests and to all the folks at Sandow Design Group who support Deep Green. The pandemic is still on as folks slowly return to offices this fall. Meanwhile, we've had the biggest wildfires to date this year in many parts of the U.S. So what are we going to do for clean air? That's our next episode in two weeks. Join us again for Deep Green, available wherever you get your podcasts.